One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Museum of London announces strategic objectives for the next five years. The banks of the River Thames experience a flurry of activity as thousands take up mudlarking. Recent poll results raise questions over the importance of cultural capital during the cost of living crisis and the knitting renaissance amongst millennials and Gen Z. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top UK architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Sharon Amond. Sharon is the director of the Museum of London. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here and it's great to travel by public transport in this blooming amazing city. In December 22, the Museum of London marked a momentous milestone as it culminated nearly five decades of occupancy at its former home designed by Paul and Moyer at London Wall before closing its doors there for a final time. The museum, which is currently in the process of relocating to the nearby Smithfield Market, stayed open for 24 hours during its final weekend late last year, welcoming in a record-breaking number of visitors. With plans to reopen in 2026, works are currently underway to transform the Grade 2 listed West Smithfield Market buildings according to the designs of a 2016 competition winning architectural team comprising Stanton Williams, Asif Khan and the conservation architect Julian Harrop. Having fortified the site's structural integrity and restored the 150-year-old facades, work below ground on the building's 10,000 metres squared of brawling Victorian brickwork is now underway. After this, the bulk of construction work in the general market will begin this year, forming part of a new phased transformation of the historic market building. The design team has ambitions for the new museum to be net zero carbon, as well as planning state-of-the-art technologies to minimise operational carbon use. Um, it is also focused on taking a retro-first approach, preserving 70% of the original building fabric and retaining as much of Horace Jones's original designs for the structure as possible. For now, the museum's 7 million artefacts, including 20,000 pieces of human skeletal remains, are mostly in storage, um, with some half a million items still waiting to be decanted from the galleries and storage of their Barbican home. OK, so Sharon, the Museum of London has existed at its Barbican site since 1976, um, when uh, two older museums, that was the Guildhall Museum and the London Museum, brought their collections together in that place. Um, now you're in the process of rehoming the entire museum and its collection into a completely new location, not too far away, but obviously very different from the old place. Sharon, what does it take to reimagine a museum with such a long history? An extraordinary amount of goodwill, a lot of vision, 
um, ambition and courage. And blooming heck, do we need a lot of staying power? And you don't realise that when you set out with a project, how long it's going to take and that, you know, there might be a pandemic in the middle of building it and all this. But, you know, it's a massive collective effort from everybody in the museum the most extraordinary design team who you mentioned you know just three characters involved in that the architectural team um and it takes the people of London and we've been engaging 100,000 of those in our project. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like the trauma of moving house, which they, people say it's like one of the biggest life events that ever happens. Uh, you think, why am I doing it? You know, you know, is it worth it? You know, and then you have to imagine the next place and like why it's going to be so great. Um, so I can I can certainly yeah uh, understand that there's been a lot of think imagination going into it. Yeah, you know, there's no template for delivering such a huge project, certainly doing a museum. You only do this once in your lifetime as a museum or as a di museum director, as a museum team, if at all, you know. Uh, you might build a new wing, a new extension, da 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 but not a real new whole museum. And, you know, and I don't know how, you know, I've, I've, I'm... Absolutely amazed at how particularly architects, like their life is spent in one long process of doing a project because then it opens and other people live in it. So they're kind of always in the process of creating something and their stamina and to create and to maintain that kind of creative energy just astounds me. So there's always, just sticking with the moving house analogy, there's always that feeling that things get lost, things get broken, but then also you find or you discover new things that were hidden or, yeah, what, uh, along the way, uh, have you lost, have you lost anything? Uh, has anything got broken or have you discovered amazing new things that you didn't know were hidden in the collection or hidden in the new buildings you're moving to? Well, there's a whole massive process and we began five years ago to start packing, packing up our objects. Now all the objects are barcoded, wow. uh, which is all about the logistics of moving them. Our objective is not to lose anything, and we haven't lost anything yet. What's yeah. the smallest object and what's the biggest object? Oh, my goodness. The biggest <laughs> object is um, a big piece of um, sculpture which is actually built into the London Wall building, which we will have to demolish the building around it. Uh, the smallest object, well, the most ephemeral object, uh, tweets. But um, have we found things? Yes, we have. When you go into a collection that's been around for many years, you find, you know, how curators in the past have perhaps miscoded things or put things in the wrong place. You know, so we found a Bible. Wow. And the Bible was in our uh, costume store and the reason it was in the costume store because it was covered in cloth uh, and highly embroidered, beautifully decorated and it was the type of Bible that we know that Queen Elizabeth I had commissioned and she didn't like her books bound in leather uh, and so here we have this wonderful discovery. Oh, that's magic. Um, now, obviously, one of the things that's so exciting about the Museum of London is it's a museum of London, the greatest city on earth, you know, which is always changing, which has millions of extraordinary people and things uh, now and at every time in its history. You know, So um, I'd be interested to hear a bit about, yeah, how do you step up to that 
challenge of being the Museum of London. And also, I know that you're, you're announcing new strategic objectives this week. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about how they support this task of being a museum to the greatest city on earth. And we asked our, ourselves this question, you know, we're, oh, we are going to recreate the Museum of London and we're calling it the London Museum, really officially from next year. In pondering this, how do we make it the most fit, the most exquisite, the most relevant, the most meaningful museum for 10 million people and all the incoming tourists? Is, is quite simple but almost immeasurable, which is be like London itself. And that kind of notion of being like London itself has driven us in everything we're doing. And it's a kind of lodestone to our, you know, when we have to make decisions about opening times or what goes in the galleries. And what's London? London's 24 hours, London's diverse, London's fast moving, London's glorious, London's awful. It's the tension between a massive city, you know, the rich, the poor, all that stuff and the problems that cities have. So, you know, we'll do our job and we will be an evocative, amazing museum if we are like London. Yeah, certainly, uh, just listening to you describe London, it's just so beautiful. And um, I guess for me, as a Londoner as well, one of the defining characteristics of London feels like the sense of freedom. How will, how will the museum, how will this space capture that spirit of freedom? What's it going to be like for me? How, do you, how will people experience that and get their London feel when they're inside the bounds of your new museum? Well, I think it starts before that, actually. And one of the great differences about the London Museum when it opens in 2026 will be its permeable character. And that's very different from every other museum in London. You'll be able to flow in and out of up to nine entrances when we're wow. fully open. And that is the characteristic of this marketplace. Of course, you you needed goods and people to come in and out really quickly to do transactions. That a market building is ideal for a museum. Absolutely ideal. And you know, it it freaked our teams out to have to deal initially with all those entrances, mm. you know, oh, what about security? What about this? What about that? You know, how will we talk to every visitor and welcome them? Well, maybe there's a kind of freedom, as you suggested, that, you know, actually visitors can flow in whichever entrance they want, flow out through another one, you know, make their own journey through the museum. You know, I want it to be a place where we all come together and that's our big, big, another big driving feature. You know, we want to be... London's shared place in the middle of it all. And just while we're discussing um, the strategic objective, so what is what is in there that might be of interest to our listeners? Going to build a train station in the basement? <laughs> no, if only, but no. So, uh, so we have five new strategic objectives, which kind of are an evolution of the past objectives we've had. So, of course, and the subject of most of today is about how we are building our new future. That's about building our museum in Smithfield. It's about refurbishing our museum in Docklands as well. And that's a really important part of who we are. And, and of course, reaching more people than ever before. So that's our second strategic objective. Why do we want to do that? 
that because I want people to really engage with the subject matter, with London itself, to feel that they're part of it. And, you know, we want to get up to two million visitors a year. So what does that look like? What, what does two million visitors look like compared to other London attractions? So, you know, uh, the big the big boys, uh, you know, Natural History Museum, more than five million visitors a year. So, you know... Um, stretch thinking, not just the same old tropes about uh, the history of London. But I really want to take you and every visitor and every website engager to new places. And this is really about robust inquiry, founded on evidence, very important, and really stimulate you and everybody else to perhaps think about the world in which we live differently. And and I know that the sort of museum and cultural sector, yeah, sadly, it is in the news a lot with people accusing people of being woke or whatever that means. I mean, is this about being trendy or is this about being beyond trendy? Is this about being sort of scientifically accurate about what is the best way to present a collection? Well, it's about evidence. It's about not being afraid to ask big, important questions. You know, why are we here? What's this about? You know, how have we lived together? Where have we come from? Where are we going? You know, then to research it. This is not about wokeness. This is about understanding ourselves more. And I get very angry and upset when people, organisations, the media use this as a or weaponise it, when it is simply about understanding ourselves more. So let's go. A piece of research the museum did some years ago into Roman London, based on the evidence of the skeletons that we have in our collection, showed that Londinium was quite a diverse place. And, you know, we have a skeleton of uh, a woman who died when she was in her early 30s, Rich Grave, we don't know her name. She was born in North Africa, grew up in the Mediterranean and found herself on the edge of the Roman Empire in an outpost, a trading post called Londinium. How did she get here? What was she doing? She was a person of colour. She would have owned slaves, perhaps, because of the wealth of her grave. You know, it's a state, you know, status. You can imagine all sorts of things about this individual. And it's based on evidence. I don't know why people would get frightened about that. Why does that frighten some people to the point where they need to think that there is some kind of purity of lineage in the place in which we live? Yeah, it's, um, it's exciting. She sounds like someone I might know today. You know? Absolutely. Well, that's the blooming point. So if I go back to how do we be the best museum for London, wow, what London, look what London has been like forever. How interesting is that why is that and what resonates today from the very origins of london itself anything else on the strategic objective oh yeah yeah, that's okay engage all young londoners because we think young people have a lot to give they're passionate they're engaged and you know i believe deeply and know from my own experience that having an impact early on in somebody's lives can help set a way of engaging with the world and with culture and a sense of ownership and a sense of, you know what, I can affect the world. And the final thing is transform ourselves for a better world. 
and we've got a, we're racing through every single part of what we are and who we are to uh, make sure that we are we are more sustainable, more equitable, more diverse as an organisation, more digital, and on and on and on. So this move is not a move; it's a total transformation. So just thinking about the architecture a bit. So the new home is going to be in Smithfield Market. This was originally designed by Horace Jones, city architect, completed in 1868. It's also going to, it's going to inhabit what was called the Smithfield General Market and eventually the Poultry Market next door, which is a, a 50s kind of brutalist building by Arab. Really cool. So how much of that original architecture and history of the site has informed the design content and layout of the museum? Uh, what kind of amazing features can people expect to see from the history where they travel around it what should they look out for the building itself really has dictated the museum so what we couldn't do is impose a grand design on top of these buildings and that i think was the first big lesson and so we kind of went into it uh with paul williams asif and julian with this kind of analytical and forensic approach to how can we take what is there and make it adjust it tinker with it in a way to make it really effective for a museum and each of those buildings have big store basement the basements which were stores they're, they're about seven meters tall amazing dark no light hurrah great for galleries uh really high ceilings brilliant for temporary exhibitions and all sorts of things we need to do the big open public space on the main let's call them the main trading floors wonderful for event spaces wonderful for exhibition spaces and so on and so forth. So it's a kind of been a way, it's been a kind of process of analysis and saying, OK, we've got this space, how can we make it work for a museum? And that has enabled us to be extraordinarily more imaginative and creative. Well, that's it, because I, I was sort of struggling to find a comparator that I know of that's similar. I mean, I think like in some ways, the um, looking at the images which show these enormous ground floor spaces, it kind of reminds me of the cast courts at the V&A. It's like just bigness. Or, or the um, Museum d'Orsay in Paris, which is this old train station that's an art museum. Um, but then I think that surely brings challenges with it because then do you just have to fill it with big things? How do you create those smaller intimate spaces? Uh, and also, how do you make it an environment that's inclusive for everybody? Because people experience space in different ways and some people might be a bit overwhelmed <laughs> by certain environments. Yeah, so the first thing we said to ourselves when we took our five big, big, big spaces is they're all going to be different. So, you know, I don't know whether you have ever slogged around a museum designed by one creative mind and one exhibition designer. It's hard going. So we've said heterogeneity in all of those spaces, the design, the concept, the kind of main philosophy of each of those spaces. Then we played onto that, the kind of intellectual framework and that is based on time. So each of the big spaces has a different sort of philosophy driven by a temporal arrangement. Gosh, that sounds highfalutin, doesn't it? But we have our time, deep time, future time, real time, night time, uh, past time, 
contemporary time. So all of those things then enable us to go, oh, let's look at our collection, our exhibitions, the visitor experience, the stories through those different lenses. So our time is very different from past time, for instance. Mudlarking, a practice involving the systematic search for archaeological discoveries along the intertidal foreshore, has witnessed a remarkable surge in popularity along the banks of the Thames. Uh, this was reported in a recent article in The Economist. Uh, Roman coins, fragments of Neolithic pottery and even a Bronze Age skull have all been found on the Thames' exposed shores by the growing number of mudlarks who scour the silt for treasure. Four years ago, mudlarking was widely considered to be a niche activity, with only 200 or so permit holders in London. Today, however, the landscape has undergone a dramatic transformation, with roughly 5,000 permit-holding individuals now participating in the tradition. The surge in participants has prompted the Port of London Authority to take decisive action, placing a temporary freeze on the issuance of new permits. Oh no, uh, because they're fearing the degradation of the fragile intertidal zone. According to Tim Miller, who's chair of the Society of Thames Mudlarks, young people and women are making up a large proportion of those new enthusiasts, uh, with women now making up roughly half of all larks, which is a substantial rise from the 5% just two decades ago. Um, as the ranks of mudlarkers swell, reaction from heritage bodies are mixed, eliciting a blend of celebration and apprehension. While the increased interest in archaeology is acknowledged and commended, concerns linger over actions of some irresponsible mudlarks, uh, which risk causing damage to key archaeological sites and delicate ecosystems. Okay, so Sharon, what's this all about? Uh, I know you're a keen mudlarker yourself, so you're the ideal guest for this topic. Um, can you tell us a bit about why you find this activity so engaging and, and why do you think so many others are taking it up in these recent years? I'm a keen mudlarker, but I'm learning and I'm not an obsessive mudlarker. And I think for me, and I think it's this very simple thing, it's about that first moment of discovery and that connection to somebody else through a material object that has been dispatched, thrown away, somehow found itself into this major river, the Thames, and washed up on the shore. And it's this moment of, this exquisite moment of connection. You find a piece of pottery and it's Roman, Blooming heck, how amazing is that? And, you know, and there's all different sorts of relative value, but they kind of are indications of a society and it enables you today to go deep into the past and to hold something, to perhaps be the first person to hold it since it was thrown away. So it's that point of discovery. Absolute discovery. And why is it specifically in the river that you can discover so much more? Because, I mean, like I do a bit of gardening. I'm now terrified that I might have thrown away some Roman pottery or other thing. Uh, but in the river, why is there so many amazing things in that river? I, th I think there's a, there's a few reasons. And the, the kind of um, geological, kind of physical aspects of the Thames and the tidal range. And the Thames has got a foreshore. And so that churn enables people to find stuff and different sorts of stuff along the river. And certainly where, you know, if you go into the city of London on the foreshore there, you can get Roman remains, of course, because it was the centre of Londinium. So the river was a place for waste. It's also votive place. You know, rivers and water bodies are votive. You know, you throw 
coins into a fountain, you throw dreams off a bridge, you throw pilgrims' badges off of bridges and things like that. So, you know, you find these kind of really magical things, truly and I would say originally magical things. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, people engaging with a, with a river, a river is a working conduit and a big working part of London, waste and whatnot. A recent YouGov poll has raised questions over the importance of cultural capital during the cost of living crisis. Uh, this was covered in an opinion piece by the columnist Francis Ryan in The Guardian this week. Um, income inequality is currently at a 10-year high in the UK, with record numbers of households depending on food banks. While low- and middle-income earners are being denied wage increases out of the belief that it will fuel further fuel inflation... This is something actually which data from the Office for National Statistics puts down only to the highest earning 10%. Um, questions are being asked as to who should be able to afford what. Um, a revealing poll from the market research firm YouGov put 35 expenses to the public and asked them to decide at what income level each should be attainable uh, for someone out on out-of-work benefits, for someone on minimal wage, for someone on the average income, uh, or for someone only in the wealthiest segment of society. Shockingly, the results revealed that just under a quarter of those surveyed believe those on out-of-work benefits shouldn't be able to comfortably afford their utility bills or even have the means to eat a balanced diet. That's pretty weird. <laughs> uh, the results were even more fascinating on the topic of culture. So just 39% thought the pursuit of a non-active hobby, such as learning an instrument, should be universally accessible. On top of that, a mere 27% believe that those on any income should have the chance to go out and socialise. Francis Ryan wrote, quote, It is the Victorian workhouse mentality repackaged for the iPhone era, in which the poor and sick are expected to endure a certain level of suffering as penance for their failings. In this context, the idea that people in minimum wage jobs should have to go without a TV is not an error of the economy, it is a punishment for the crime of not being productive enough. End quote from Francis Ryan. Um, so so Sharon, what's this all about? Um, the Guardian article quotes the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who in 1932 said, quote, the idea that the poor should have leisure has always been shocking to the rich. Um, what do you make of this poll? Because it seems like, and as Frances Ryan is saying in her opinion piece, that this suggests the public mindset is returning to a somewhat Victorian viewpoint in the worst possible way. As you can hear, I'm quite lost for words. <laughs> um... I just don't understand it and I don't recognise it and I don't agree with it. Who's to say what anybody else should do with their leisure time? Who's to say what pursuit, what cultural and interest pursuits people should have? Who's to make that judgment based on a perception of income level? Uh, for me, everybody should have access to the cultural world around them. It's all of ours. It's not exclusive. I mean, that's it. So the YouGov data indicates that 39% of people think only those on the average salary or above should be able to afford to go to a theatre a couple of times a year. Now, actually, I know there are theatres that run free nights or like pay pay what you can nights. So somewhat maybe they're ignorant of that. But um, it's not I don't think it is about the cost, is it? It's just like about this idea that these niceties, culture itself, 
is a kind of preserve of people who are deemed to be successful uh, or deemed to be productive within society. The statistic goes on, 49% of people believe that those on benefits shouldn't be able to afford children's art supplies. Now, we are living through very challenging times right now, okay? Um, and we don't always know what the answer is or the way out of these challenging times are. And to some extent, you know, it, it almost goes beyond politics. You know, it's like, a, it's a bigger thing. But it, specifically in the art and culture sector, you know, what is the challenges of views like this? Um, what does it tell you as somebody running a museum about the importance of art and culture in the public consciousness? What does it tell you about you know, the challenges that you're, you're going to face um, to make sure that's equitable for everyone? I don't think culture is, or even access to creativity, such as pens and pencils and what have you, is um, a, a cherry on the cake. It is a necessity for us all. It's the way in which we will foster our imagination, build our skills, create a cohesive society. It's what drives the economy in the UK, the creative industries. It's what makes us uh, the kind of people the nation that we are there are some people who'd say you know look at london look at the you know we've got all these rich areas these new skyscrapers you know luxury living uh, all of the kind of trappings whether it's fashion or dining and culture is one of those right and they'd say this is the this is the the way of the modern world you know if you're rich you have access to clean air and good health and if you're not you you don't have access to these things and you know you've got to those people have got to find their way why is that why is that position so wrong because we're a civilized society and we take care of the least able in our society that's why people who have disabilities should be and are looked after. That's why we have a free education system. That's why we have the NHS. That's why we have free museums, libraries, parks, the cultural infrastructure that support us living in a city. And it's everything. It's great housing, it's great libraries, it's great culture, it's great healthcare. But it's interesting as well, you, you mentioned the free museums, it wasn't always that way. Like in London, it was only really in around the turn of the millennium that all the bulk of these ma major visitor attractions became free. And um, I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to take something for granted once you got it. What kind of impact has that had in a city like London? I mean, I remember you used to have to buy a ticket. You know, that was a massive barrier for a lot of people. Yeah, I was working at the Natural History Museum when we went from charging to being free. And visitor numbers went up uh, uh, and have continued to stay up. And that's brilliant. That is really brilliant. Citizens pay to support our national inf institutions like libraries, like museums, like archives and galleries. And so for, the, for citizens to be able to access uh, those institutions for free is, is, I think, a human right. And not only does it have this great benefit for citizens, it, it, it is driving what we're seeing now, which is the kind of resurgence in tourism and the resurgence in kind of visitors coming to London because they cite culture, museums, and that all of that stuff that we have in London as being one of the reasons, the main reason for them coming to our city. 
Traditional crafts have seen a resurgence in recent years with a younger generation of people turning to so-called domestic crafts. Um, this was reported in The Guardian Australia, who spoke to enthusiasts about their hobby of knitting. In an era often associated with rapid technological advancements, the allure of slow and deliberate creation has struck a resonant chord. Young people seeking a reprieve from the digital cacophony are finding solace and creative expression in the rhythmic loops of yarn and the tactile artistry of traditional crafts. This resurgence is not confined to just personal pastimes, it is woven its way into social circles and communities. Knitting clubs are sprouting up in urban areas, offering a space for enthusiasts to share skills, stories and a sense of camaraderie. Knitting, derived from the word knot, has been traced back to a pair of ancient Egyptian socks dating from the 3rd to the 5th century AD. However, the structural complexity of the garments indicates that knitting is far older than archaeological evidence can prove. Since knitting spread to Europe from the Middle East via trade routes, it has continually fallen in and out of favour, particularly over the course of the 20th century, where it grew to become associated with the stereotypes of the domestic, mundane and tedious. Okay, so Sharon, I'm guessing you knit... I think it's. I've I've heard it's one of your passions. Um, what is it about knitting that is proving so popular with a new generation of people in the current day? It's cool. It's cool to make something. It's cool to make something. It's cool to to take a thread, a single thread, and create a whole garment. It's cool to give gifts. You design it. It's colour, the thread, the whatever. It's meditative, as you say. You know, I was knitting this morning. I knit faster when I'm stressed, I realise. I I knit at different times, different patterns at different times. I have a Brexit cushion that I knitted. Wow. That's because I was so stressed out at the horror of Brexit that I needed to get lost in a very, very complex thing. And I needed to stop thinking and stop worrying and stop being anxious. So I took up this this very complex pattern. I'm gonna stop calling it the Brexit cushion though. I love knitting. It's technical, it's interesting, it's rebellious. There are many uh, groups who are really using knitting and repreising knitting as this kind of inverted commas, woman's craft. So it has less a value than, you know, anything else anybody does if you're a man uh but it um and you know there's there's all sorts of great you see knitting bombing going on i've met scientists who have crocheted i know it's not knitting but crocheted chaos theory scientists who are crocheting coral reefs we'll have to learn how to knit a podcast next yeah <laughs> and it's interesting because even in this article in this coverage in guardian australia you know, it's described as a domestic craft or a tradition i mean these are like they're quite loaded it's quite loaded language isn't it and you know and you're telling me if people are out there um you know step aside graffiti it's about the yarn bombing you know it's it's happening in the streets it's happening in nightclubs it's happening in offices Ab absolutely absolutely you know in in the second world war uh, women used to knit code into garments wow. and this would be used as a way to communicate what was happening in uh, Europe to the Allies. <laughs> 
So we're now on to the culture section. Uh, so coming up, we've got the next instalment of our Accelerate Debates. It's Open City's long-running series of um, really cool events that happen at Rich Mix in Shoreditch. Uh, this one is called Working Class Heroes. It's all to do with class and how it can be the elephant in the room of architecture. Uh, at this debate, a group of speakers will celebrate their own personal working class heroes and weigh up who deserves to be better known and celebrated within the architectural industry. Uh, so you can join us on Thursday the 14th of September from 7pm to 9pm at Rich Mix uh, to hear about these six remarkable working class designers and interrogate the wider question of whether class matters in architecture. Um, it was just a really fun evening and the Open City team will be there along with some great panellists. Um, we're also announcing the Open House Festival team. Uh, delighted to announce that Tola Dabiri and Cheryl Bowen of Electric Peers will be joining us as guest curators for this year's Open House Festival. Um, the guest curators are specially selected Londoners who hail from diverse backgrounds within the built environment. Um, their curated festival collections and events will explore various themes and narratives from within their own practice and experiences of architecture in the built environment. Um, Electric Peers will be focusing on the 75th anniversary of Windrush. The second instalment of Eric Parry's two-part Tale of Two Cities, uh, it's a series of walking tours, is available now on the Open City podcast feed. So this on-demand audio tour focuses on the City of London and will begin at Southwark Gateway, Needle, uh, on London Bridge, and then takes in Fen Court, along with St Helens Place and Undershaft, Threadneedle Street and Paternoster Square. They're all buildings designed by Eric Parry. Um, this is a free to listen to uh, audio version of a walking tour that Open City hosted and is also a printed version of it coming up soon. So um, thank you, Sharon, for being our guest on this week's London. It's been absolutely fantastic. Where should listeners go uh, to stay up to speed on your activities? Is there a website or social media handle they should look out for? Uh, at Museum of London uh, on Twitter, uh, all social media channels, um, and of course our website, uh, which we are refreshing. So that's going to be another exciting transformation coming soon. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. <laughs> <laughs>